0: Okay, welcome to the colloquium tonight. Uh, Tonight we'll be focusing on documentary films and new ways of thinking about documentary. And it's a great pleasure to uh, invite and to welcome David Kelly, who is assistant professor at Wellesley for photography in the art department. And I met David a while ago when Chung Dai organized a really interesting event on documentary and I was really intrigued when I talked to David about his work because his work combines sort of installation, photography and and, um, film and video installations in a very interesting way to really rethink what is a process in something that's becoming, that's becoming a reality. And looking at some of his projects, for example, the uh, Route 3 project that I was really interested in is a route between uh, Burma, China, and Thailand, Laos, yeah. Thailand. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> it's basically taking the spatial metaphor of the road and and it's a newly built road to really explore the social, the cultural aspects, and this new route that connects people. And that's a a 3D installation, which is really interesting that he did with a colleague together. And uh, so looking at these and exploring these different spaces in terms of coming up with narratives and so on, I think is a really interesting way to think about also in relationship to... Uh, CMS's new DocLab—that's <clears throat> that's emerging and coming—and this we'll have a big event on March 20th. Uh, really starting DocLab uh, with a big event, and you will all hear about it if you haven't already. Uh, so, and today uh, David will show some of his work and how he's relating these different elements together. We have a couple of colleagues from other departments here as well. Um, and your work has been exhibited in a number of different places, in, in Holland, uh, at the Bach in Utrecht, mm-hmm. um, and in New York, and so on. The list is very long, Mass Marker, you know, in, in Western Mass, uh, and so on. <clears throat> so, you know, you have really come around, and I think it's really great that you're now here at Wellesley. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we look forward to hearing more, and welcome again. Thank you, Kurt. Um,
1: and I'd like to thank uh, June Dai for introducing me to Kurt at her symposium, um, and um, which was a very interesting symposium on on uh, photography and media's relationship to trauma and war, and and she does really interesting work on that. So I look forward to more work from June Dai. Um I um, today I I you know often with with um, artists talking about their work, it's it's just their work, but. Knowing this was a colloquium and sort of the beginnings of of this new um, area of the, of the open doc lab, I thought I'd take the opportunity to um, sort of break down structurally some of the things that I think about when I think about making a film that um, that I think of as, uh, as as artwork not necessarily documentary but i I like the 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 uh, there's something that um, the uh, Daniel Strobe and uh, Jean Strobelier, the the couple, the filmmaker couple that uh, made a lot of wonderful films. They had this idea that every film is a documentary. So I like that as a kind of uh, uh, a way of thinking generally about working with uh, lens-based media, even with you know digital video. Um, that sort of everything, whether it's a fiction or intention is a documentary, it's still a documentary of some sort of performance that's happening in front of the camera. So um, I I kind of broke down a couple of um, ways that I wanted to talk about things with, with my work. And so it's three things. One is um, uh, performance happens in frames. Um, we have, you know, there's the frame of the camera or the, uh, the frame of the canvas or the frame of the stage or the frame of the screen when you're in the theater. Um, there's always this frame. And then, um, you know, what I get from, um, um, this, uh, Irving Goffman, who was a, a teacher in the 60s at Harvard, who, writing about, uh, a sociologist writing about a, a, a great book called Frame Analysis from uh, 1974. Um, he talks about frame in terms of social relations and um, the innate theatricality of, of interactions and, and, and cultural and social situations. So I, I like to think about that because of, of the way that I stage work um, within my uh, Projects. Um, The other thing is um, thinking about um, blocking. Um, How, if you think about setting up a a project on location when you're working with people who are actors or non-actors, how do you situate them? You know, in the theater you block out actors where they're going to be playing their roles, right? But um, naturally, what happens when someone brings a camera into a a certain environment? There. Is the situation where people position themselves? So is the camera going to be? I recently talked to a uh, French Canadian documentary filmmaker, and she said that um, she was making a distinction because I had been in Newfoundland this summer, and I've been looking at documentary film that was made in Newfoundland this summer uh, in the '60s, actually. And, uh, and what she said was that um, there was a she could make a distinction between Anglophone and Francophone French documentary film because. Um, the, the French Canadian uh, filmmakers and, and, and Anglophone film, filmmakers in Canada at that time, in some ways, could be credited for some of the inventions of Cinema Verite. So, uh, Michel Bro, a, a Francophone filmmaker, had worked with Jean Rouche on Chronicle of a Summer um, because of his handheld technique with a 60 millimeter camera. And she told me that she thought that the difference between the French and the, and the English uh, speaking filmmakers was that the French used wider lenses. And so when they shot their subjects, they were in closer to them. And so she felt like ideologically that they were with their subjects versus the Anglophone filmmakers who would use long telephoto lens and have this more sort of scanning, invasive kind of voyeuristic look at things. So they're both sort of depicting realism, but from a very different standpoint, just by how they change the lens. So I, I think that is something to think about in terms of um, positionality, um, and a further point on that in terms of blocking is this idea that um, when a filmmaker goes into it, whether it's an artist or an ethnographer uh, or a documentary film crew goes into a site, you always need a fixer, right? So there's there's some um, person. So in the ethno- ethnographic uh, um, situation or event, there's often the native informant who might be the person who, one, the anthropologist wants to get the information from about this cultural situation, right? But also just in general, the pragmatics of production on location, you have to have somebody who can be there, who knows people within the local community who can communicate with you about that and with the local people to make arrangements, to make deals. And so uh, how that balance is struck about how you're going to collaborate together is is something interesting to think about as I show you some work. Um, and then uh, something that's really interesting, uh, I think, about um, something that's, that I'm ambivalent about. I'm, I'm drawn to, but I'm also uh, repulsed by in a number of, of, of issues of, of how film works within the documentary or ethnographic situation is this idea of, um, of the ethics of it, right? So that sometimes the most compelling documentaries are when the frame is broken, and I, I, I call that here liquid cinema or, or the, the leak. Um, how and, and I, I, the name of this talk, I said, was the color of seawater through a picture window. And I get that from Franz Boas, who uh, was doing um, his dissertation in the Baffin um, Islands in, in Northern Canada. and his research was on the, the, um, the color of seawater. Um, and how the psychophysics of the color of seawater, and it wound up coming to be something about his inventing this idea of um, sort of um, the visuality of culture, and how how um, the, the, the the describing seawater has to be uh, very specific about the people who are describing seawater. Um, so um, I'll show you some examples of what I mean by um, liquid cinema or or the leak. Um, okay, so I'm going to just skip. Um, So, and then the foundation of this also is just, where does this happen, the the frame, right? Um, Actually, structurally. And so, to to show you a a recent project I did with a collaboration with a um, sculptor from Los Angeles um, called Survival-Based Camp is the name of the project and it's Sandy Delisavoy. So, we collaborated, Um, he's in LA and I was in New York and we sent drawings back and forth to each other and, and built sculptures based on our drawings and then we had performers perform with them in space. And I start with this um, because I want to think about what is a frame and what is a screen. And how does that become physical and structural? How has it become something that is performed with? And how does it conduct the movement of the person that's performing? Tomer, could you turn up the volume more on the computer? So there's our frame. We have the, the mise-en-scene. We have um, something that functions both as a screen, um, as a background, as a sculpture to, or a prop to interact with. That becomes a sort of structural element that, um, that thinks about how uh, performance happens for a camera. Um, I'm going to jump back to somebody else's work, um, the film, Japanese filmmaker Kazuo Hara. Um, and he made a film called um, Goodbye CP, um, which is Goodbye Cerebral Palsy. And um, it was a a project that he did with a community of activists who were um, uh, people with cerebral palsy. And uh, I'll show it to you first. And then I'll tell you a little bit about why I chose it. Here he's talking about the filmmaker, Hara, Kazuo Hara. (laughs) So I'm always thinking about this this sort of burden of subjecthood—you know, this idea that the person who is the subject of the documentary has this role that they have to perform within the, the, the sort of realist frame uh, to represent some se- sense of authenticity or some, or pre- 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 uh, to be responsible for some sort of catharsis within the audience that is is watching this particular film or experiencing this particular project—and um, Kazaohara. Um, it's questionable with his projects. He, he's somebody who's always pushing what you think is the eth- ethical boundary of the documentary relationship between subject and, and, and uh, filmmaker. And um, he worked in collaboration with this group, the Green Lawn Movement, uh, of, uh, which is this, the ac- cerebral palsy activist group. But he was always crossing the line. The, this guy, who's in this picture here, was the main character in the film who was a poet and would, would, would go in and, um, and uh, sit in the, on the floor of the subway station in Shinjuku in Tokyo and, and try to give people information about their movement and get money um, for donations. And um, uh, he wanted to perform for Hara. Hara wanted to, help to, to shoot him naked in the street or put to, to shoot him um, being self-sufficient, carrying him through the street on his knees but his wife, who, was also, who also has cerebral palsy, didn't want him to do that. She felt like it was a humili- humiliating thing for him to do. But the, but the guy, and I don't remember his name right now, insisted that he wanted to do that. Um, so my question is, is just why, why did he do that? Is it because he wanted, uh, he felt like this film might be a vehicle for the Green Lawn movement to further their cause? Uh, was it because of the presence of the camera and the, the, the urging of Kazuhara? Uh, I'm not sure. Uh, and i show you one other example of, of something that I'm talking about in relationship to this relationship. This is um, Shirley Clark's. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I'm a
2: stone whore. <laughs> I Like, I have a friend in this town who's a school teacher who does teach in the public school system where she goes from house to house, teaching kids that can't go to school. And one day on the street, she said something to me very good. She said, Jason, everyone in New York has a gimmick, and mine is teaching school. So I found out that mine was hustling. Now, I have more than one hustle. I'll come on as a maid or a butler or a flunger. Anything to keep from punching the clock from 9 to 5, because... Every time I punch that clock from nine to five, it's been a job that's been such a drag that makes you sick. I'm making a scene now uh, in Bellevue with two hitchhikers, shrinkers, psychiatrists, and these are cats that get into your business, you know. And then you gotta be here for just how much of your business you wanna let them
1: get into. So you go and get yourself together. So. Uh, with Portrait of Jason, I mean, it's it's a film, you watch it and you're, you're immediately drawn in to this, this character. Um, his name is um, Jason, Jason Holliday. Jason um, and uh, he's just a very charismatic guy, but there's also an extreme amount of pathos involved because you he's constantly um, sort of, Self-reflecting and self-deprecating in some ways, talking about how he hasn't really gotten anywhere. He's done all, all he's done during his life has just been a hustler. He's just been having sex. He hasn't been able to get his stage act together because he wants to be a cabaret performer. And um, it gets to this climax where he, he pulls out. They, they, they kind of urge him to pull out this bag of props that he's brought to do his gag for his um, his um, stage show. And it's he's got I think he's got a, a hat in there and a couple other little props. And it becomes a very pathetic. Act where you sort of feel implicated in, in feeling sorry for this man, but who this man has been sort of plied with drinks and, and pills and, and asked all these questions from Shirley Clark and um, her um, filmmaking partner, Carl Lee. Um, and so I'm just always asking myself, this film that's very compelling at the same time, also repulsive, this sort of uh, polarity that happens within the ethnographic moment, I find intriguing and I, and I, and I wonder about that. Um, so uh, I move on to this, um, you know, Gordon Matta-Clark's uh, 1975 um, um, sculpture, uh, Day's End, which was in Pier 52 in New York, and I, I here's an interior shot, I bring it up in terms of um, the relationship between um, sight and the bodies that inhabit sight, and, and how that ends up playing out um, when things, um, so how, I guess the role that, that, um, that stories connected to site and communities um, relate to uh, how space changes. And I think that has a relationship to documentary film in a sense because film often tells these stories, right? Or preserves them, archives them. So these are some pictures by Alvin Baltrop, uh, uh, who um, was a photographer, uh, African American photographer, who was taking pictures at the same time that Matt Clark was doing his project, but was was photographing a, a sort of a very different um, subject matter. He was photographing the, the community, the cruising community that that, was on, that would hang out on the piers, right? So here's you see um, a cutting from Day's End, and you see men sunbathing and and hanging out on the pier, right? And um, he had um, a, a series of, of, of portraits of people fucking or lying around or sleeping in the in the piers and so he was documenting oftentimes um, people it, it, within this particular community that was over there so oftentimes you had um, people who were um, you had people who were homeless that were sleeping over there on the pier you had um, Uh, Latino and and, um, African-American people that were over there is also... Chelsea was a kind of an interesting mix this time that I think um, that this area, right, the abandoned piers, provided a kind of um, unsurveilled place, right, where people could have uh, seclusion and sort of live in a way that was... um, um, that might not be, you know, as... Publicly accepted, ex, ex, uh, accepted. Say five blocks east of there, right? So, i working on a project with a with a group of artists in New York called Parallel Lines, um, and we were thinking back at these moments of of the piers, sort of the history of West Village and and Chelsea, and and these areas that the meatpacking district areas uh, in New York that at, at a had a time where it was a bit of the sort of um, leftover industrial New York, a place where you could feel like you could breathe a little bit that wasn't sort of totally um, over-gentrified, right? And then, um, of course, this, this park renovation happened, um, the, the renovation of this elevated train tracks, right? And um, so we started to look at this. It, it was such a praised project, right? Everyone was talking about what a wonderful idea, a new park, and it's this private-public partnership, and um, it was... Um, a great boon for real estate development in the neighborhood. You hear, you see the in the background there, you can see uh, the standard hotel. Um, here's a, an image on the High Line uh, of a recent article that we, we've we done um, that that is a, um, a collage of about 30 pictures where you start to see um, people sort of blurring through the frame, right? And um, this was, uh, we, we look at the photography's relationship to this area because it was something that was instrumentalized in the in the redevelopment of the park, right so that Diller scorfidio Renfro and James Corner used these photographs by Joel Sternfeld as a, as a kind of documentary reference for design of the park right and so photography from the from the outset was an essential part of how to frame this particular site, this public space where people would have an interaction right and so what kind of public um, is constructed by this type of design, right, is something that we've started to look at. So those communities that, that, that Alvin Baltrop was photographing, do those same communities have access to this type of space you know, if, it's, if it becomes a place that sort of um, becomes um, preventatively expensive because of the sort of boutiques and Apple stores and hotels and, and renovated um, condos that are being, um, put up in the neighborhood, does it become a place that's, that's exclusive, right? Where there isn't that openness, this sort of dark space or heterotopic space within New York where people can go and, and not necessarily be, um, be charged for it, right? And it's interesting to think about from the earlier piece that I showed you of the performance with the screens, um, I guess my sort of interest in rumination on this idea of the frame and how it's, how it's used um, here, by Diller Scorfidio Renfro, in a way of just literally framing the city, you know, um, thinking about this sort of um, uh, what do we say? Joel Sternfeld photographs, it really became a, a structural component from many of the vistas as you walk down along the park. here you see um, one of the new condominiums on the right, um, and, the, and the public that sort of traffics on this former rail track. So I'll just show you a short clip from um, an interview that we did with uh, Dean McCannell. So, this idea of the, the dean has about um, how he analyzes tourist sites um, and how um, authentic experiences or authentic sites become, in a way, br- branded, something that has to be reproduced um, because there's um, uh, sort of capital at stake in that, right? To keep that place. Um, uh, suited with the imagery that made it famous to begin with, right? And so he talks about, um, he also is, is quoting from oftentimes from Irving Goffman, thinking about this idea of staged um, authenticity, right? That authenticity is something that can be performed, right, uh, obviously. But, and so that I, I question that within, ha- within the ethnographic lens of how um, people perform, what is the performance of the real? for the documentary camera, right? Or, the, or the, the artist that works on location, or the ethnographic crew, or the documentary crew, or the, uh, so how, how, what is the sort of um, identity that one wants to put forth, and how is that reproduced? And, and uh, I think that's interesting to think about that in terms of, um, uh, I'm gonna just skip for a second here to, um, actually, I think it's, um, Sorry, <laughs> videos are going crazy here. Um, I think it's interesting to think about that in terms of how, um, well, with the High Line, for example, this site that I believe um, you know, benefits from the history of that area, right? The sort of the history of, of, of gay liberation, the history of art being produced in that area, the history of, of um, the, the, the communities that occupy that area historically, right? But, um, but does it in, it, in its, if for example, you think about the High Line as a, um, as a ruin, right? It's a kind of a 19 almost like a 19th century rail ruin. It's not that old, but it's this idea of this, this preserving this thing that's in a state of decay, right? So it, it has this, serves this function as a kind of a monument or a ruin that's being preserved for people to use in the current moment, but what is the history that's that's preserved, right? And what and in order to preserve that, to whatever it's produced now, does it become something that's sort of um, uh, ossified into this this image that that New York wants to present itself to the world, right? That is the kind of Bloomberg uh, Giuliani safe space kind of um, policed state that 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 is the current New York, and um, so. Dean McCannell writes about this idea of um, histories in reserve, that, that sites like this um, draw on these histori- historical stories that, that help produce that, the uh, illusion of this authentic experience, but then it stops there. It's sort of just as it serves as sort of instrument, these stories are instrumentalized in order to, to make the image that becomes this thing that can be commodified, right? That capital um, takes over and, and markets, right? Which is like New York is something to be marketed. So. I'll move on to another project. Um, I w- was uh, invited to this uh, art residency uh, or applied to this art residency and was um, accepted in Newfoundland, this brand new um, art residency uh, on um, Fogo Island, which is this remote um, kind of outport fishing community in the sort of the middle of Newfoundland on the north side and um, it's a community that's really interesting because um, so Newfoundland's famous for having. Um, had to deal with resettlement, so they, they were part of the uh, British uh, Empire until the after World War II, and so then they chose Confederation and joined Canada, um, but a lot of the communities were part of this uh, the legacy of of colonialism and the merchant system. So there's a lot of poor fishermen in these outport communities, and and um, the fishing, um, uh, at, for example, in the 60s, they were sort of um, beholden to the merchant system. So this Canadian uh, film uh, initiative by the Canadian Film Board called uh, The Challenge for Change, which is um, a lot of these filmmakers who were instrumental in in, uh, coming together with this, uh, or sort of um, uh, innovating with cinema verite did a project. One of them, Colin Lowe, did a project on this island where he he filmed local communities um, as they were voting whether or not to form a union so that they could, have set the own price of their fish. right? And so documentary film at that time was used, um, as, in his words, Colin Lowe's words, as a way of kind of mediating between people. Communities on the island, there were Protestant communities and Catholic communities, and they were separated. And the films were a way for them to communicate with each other, because uh, at that time, they, they didn't even have electricity on the island. So he would film a community talking about their issues with fishing, Or with the church, or with the school, or with the province. And then he would process the film and then bring it back and then show it to the community and show it to other communities so they could see each other and how they talk and that they share certain problems. And then he would take their films and show it to the government. And then the government would comment on it and he would film the government and then he would take that film back and show it to the people on Fogo Island. So it was this kind of, it's become known as the Fogo process, but this sort of feedback filmmaking process. And I had. Already been really interested in this type of process because there were other examples of this type of work dating back as far as Robert Flaherty's uh, Nanook of the North, where he would make films. He had a film lab where he was filming in the Baffin Islands, so he would would film the Inuit community and then process the films and then show them work so they could see how they look on camera and decide if they wanted to change certain ways within their performance. And that in turn influenced John Roosh. In, in France who would, um, would show, screen his films for the people he was shooting in Africa and have them actually do the voiceover live over the film. So there was this, some, to a certain degree, a, a, a bit of agency within being the subject of those films because you were sort of co-producing the film with the filmmaker. So um, a focus on a, on a small photo project I did on this island. So they built these huge modern studios on Fogo Island for the artists to stay in and the community's changing. And so now, at that time in the 60s, it was the the filmmaking and the challenge for change that were sort of a way to help renovate the economy on the island, right? This sort of cultural um, mediation. And now, um, a woman who was in one of those films at that time who left the island and made um, several hundred million dollars in fiber optics decided that she wanted to move back to the island and give back to the community and that she thought that the way that she would do it would be through the arts that she would build an art residency and a hotel, and that those things would help renovate the economy because it would bring outsiders to the island to learn about the island, and they would interact with the locals, um, which is a really interesting prospect, but I'm also very skeptical when everyone says that they're going to lead with the arts. It just makes me think about artists moving into communities and renovating places and, and then um, getting pushed out because the price of rent goes up so high, right? And it's very similar to the situation that I was pointing out about my perspective on the High Line, which is a place that makes use of the narratives that are related to that neighborhood but doesn't necessarily serve in an ongoing way the communities that um, are the, the sort of current um, iteration um, of, of those communities. So, um, and, in, and in, in very particularly instrumentalize the photographs of Joel Sternfeld in order to interpret the designs to present this new uh, urban American pastoral um, so I found these houses um, situated on the side that were being worked on. Um, they were cutting things out of the houses. They were pulling up the old wall boards so you could start to see the, the layers of the history of these houses. Um, they, they were cutting out the stairs of it, so I, I got one of the stairs and brought it over to my studio to photograph. And I, I was struck that they, they decided to take these old salt box houses, right, That um, where f- people that lived on Fogo Island lived for many years. Now, they don't want to live in them because they're not, um, you know, they're not insulated, and they, they want to build them. behind this family. You can't see the house, but the house behind, that family sold this house um, to this real estate developer, and they moved it over to this nice view of the, um, of the water and put in this big glass wall. Um, so you could have a, a view of, of the bay in Fogo, this beautiful view, million dollar view, and then turns it into vacation rentals. So what the sort of side effect of this really interesting social experiment of having an a, a, a artist' residency on the island um, is that other people are coming in and, and, and realizing that there's, now there's going to be more tourists on, on the island, so they're buying houses and property values are going up, and so local people who lived on the island. Um, young people who used to be able to buy a house for twenty or $50,000 to start their family or, or, or to live in, now um, are out, priced out, and so literally kind of being dispossessed of their land on the island. So it's, it's, and it's a really interesting experiment, what's happening on the island, and it's just started, but um, this sort of struck me, and it reminded me of um, an essay I read by Jeff Wall, where um, he, he looked at this um, Mies Van Der Rohe house, um, um, the Farnsworth house, which is in Illinois, and um, he's writing about Dan Graham's work uh, called uh, uh, "Suburban uh, Alteration of a Suburban House," um, and I'll, I'll show you that. This is Dan Graham's project. Um, so Dan Graham had this idea that um, he wanted to make a suburban American home where you would cut the facade off the suburban American home and make it a glass wall. Um, and then you, halfway through the house, you would put a mirror wall. And so that um, the, there was a kind of private space behind the glass wall, and then there was a more sort of staged space where the, where the people that lived in the house could be like to watch TV or something. And so people going by could see them doing that. Um, and then the mirror served the effect of reflecting the houses across the street. So the house had a facade now, but it was just a reflection of the house across the street. So seeing these houses on Fogo Island re- reminded me of the Dan Graham piece and, um, and so, Jeff Wall talks about how Mies van der Rooy, having lived through um, the destruction of World War II, that maybe his inspiration for building these the sort of glass-walled houses for, uh, uh, I mean, glass-walled industrial spaces with the kind of the, the father of the, um, the steel and glass modern office building, was that he saw all the um, buildings that bombed out during the war from, from uh, Blitzkrieg, and then you would see the ha- interiors of the houses exposed, right? So then you could see right into the living rooms. And so that was the kind of, in a way, this sort of modernity is immediately sort of laminated to this idea of kind of trauma and war and sort of the, the, the shift of things that are happening in, in, um, in Europe at the time. Um, and I come back to sort of Gordon Matta clarks uh, famous piece of splitting from 1974, and thinking about this idea of houses that become obsolete. Now, this house was obsolete. I think it was his dealer's. dealer owned it. He had contacted him and wanted to, to do a work, and the dealer said that he could use his house, because all he really wanted was the property. It was in New Jersey, and so the house didn't really have an, a set value. But, but the imagery, of course, does in this sort of iconoc- iconography of, of, um, of America, and I think that's something that, that Graham is playing with, too, this idea of... of um, of tradition and the associations of the home as a sort of stage set for um, all that's intimate, interior, and, and private, right? Um, and here we're playing with the sort of private and public. And so I, I think that this photo project that I was working on on Fogo Island is, is in some ways dealing with this idea of, um, of, um, of how an economy is changing, that these fishermen's homes are being converted to vacation rentals uh, you know, in uh, sort of at the same pace that the island is becoming, um, the economy of the island is shifting to a tourist and a, vi- a visual economy, right, versus a, a commodity or extraction economy. So um, that summer there was a historical um, boat building organization that d- did it. This is how they used to move houses in Newfoundland when, during the, um, the time when people were being resettled that you would float your house. If it was winter, you would slide it on the ice, you know, pull it by horses or, or something like that, or a tractor now. Or at this time, they decided to float it. So this, um, I was able to, to be a part of this um, house towing, where in Twillingate, a, a community that's close to Fogo Island, they pulled one of these old merchant shacks um, around the bend to the historical museum site. kind of building a kind of traditional Newfoundland community, right? And sort of forming these idyllic things to preserve as a, as a way of, of looking at the historic uh, history of, um, looking at the history of, of Newfoundland. So just a quick look here at, um, this is the studios, the artist studios, um, these ultra kind of modern extruded sort of CGI designed spaces that are just clinging on the sides of rocks. So it's, it's also interesting that, that um, this architecture, this kind of, um, ultra-postmodern kind of modern architecture that's being used for this woman's um, art residency on the island is influencing um, the design of the vacation rentals in some ways, creating a new vernacular. Okay, so... I'm gonna just skip ahead here for a second. Because I want to show you the film that, that Kurt was talking about. So, uh, all right, stop here. So, show you a quick one, one other little second here before I move on. So, um, I was um, working in, in China on a project with uh, my collaborator uh, on some projects, uh, Patty Chang, in uh, 2006 and 7, when they were finishing the Three Gorges Dam. And um, at that time, you know, they were displacing cities to sort of move them up to high above water levels so that they could build the dam and flood the reservoir, which was going to be a 500-kilometer long reservoir from uh, Yichang to Chongqing. Um, and um, there's, this is a famous image you probably recognize as the, the nail house, this one woman who wouldn't, wouldn't give up and sell her house. This isn't directly related to the dam. This was actually like an apartment complex that was going to be built in Chongqing. But just thinking about sort of places in the, in, in, the, in the, you know, thinking about New York, thinking about the High Line and this idea of sort of renovating New York and using old elements, the sort of spoilage of old industrial New York and bringing it into contemporary design and, and the future of the city and how it gets branded. And, and the, the aspirations of people like Mao who, who, who talked about um, constantly about building a dam that would sort of harm, you know stop the flooding on the Yangtze River and, and, and mark a modern, um, a modern China, right? Would be a symbol of a modern China that could produce its own electricity in the interior and the, and the country would grow. And here you see him in front of a, one of the first bridges in China. And so Mao would often do swims in the, in the, um, in the uh, Yangtze River to sort of show his, his health and strength. And, and um, he was born in a town near the Yangtze River. So um, that sort of research, thinking about how the, the landscape was changing and then simultaneously, um, while we were over there researching, hearing about this US nuclear submarine, the USS San Francisco that had been flying blind, which these are nuclear submarines, don't have any windows. So they're flying at full speed off the coast of Guam and ran into a mountain at full speed that wasn't on the charts. It wasn't a mountain that had been mapped, uh, this undersea mountain. So it was about 200 feet of water and it collided into it. Unfortunately, one of the sailors died, Many were terribly injured, and they thought the vessel might be completely, um, have to be abandoned, but fortunately they were able to save it. Um, But it it became an interesting metaphor to sort of cross um, map over the Three Gorges Dam. So in one case, the Three Gorges Dam would be the largest concrete object in the world that would hold back this great river, right? And so sort of man's attempt to sort of stop nature and and harness its energy, and in here is sort of the height of. Of, of human technology with nuclear uh, capabilities and 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 sort of the the the, th- the nuclear threat that um, would be the sort of the, yeah as I said the height of technology that comes up against this uncharted mountain right so this sort of nice sort of poetic justice so we produced this project called Flotsam Jetsam and um, collaborating with a group of Chinese opera actors that were living in Yichang the city that where the Three Gorges Dam was built so these are some stills from that. Um, and um, we interviewed them, um, asking them questions. We had a, a, a theater director from Shanghai come in and work as a kind of psychodramatic group therapy leader who would sort of interview them about their dreams. And then, inter- and then we would sort of write their dreams into a script. And then they would perform it within the site of the dam on this theatrical set that we built that looked like the, the submarine. So I'll show you a, a short clip. So his, his daughter, he dreamt his daughter, who, is a, who wants to sing opera, but is working now as a flight attendant far away from him, um, uh, that she uh, was going to sing, got the part to sing Madame Butterfly. So this actress is, is performing as the daughter in his dream sequence, and this is a public swimming, swimming area on one of the rivers that feeds the Yangtze River um, near the dam. So in this project, I I was interested in this idea of of rehearsal, you know, of not really getting it. You know, they're not the non-actors, non-professional actors. non professional actors on a boat approaching the Three Gorges Dam, right, to go up the shiplocks. Uh, and she's not an opera singer, the actress, so she's lip-syncing to the Madame Butterfly um Chocho San Aria. But there seems to be something that's potentially productive in in dealing with um, imagery associated with um, particular events, situations, contemporary situations where the process of getting together and using these kind of theatrical stagings that sort of play out the kind of ethnographic relationship, if you will, but, but in the realm of the theater, in the realm of the imaginary that, that has a potential to, to get at um, aspects of sort of understanding how we represent the, the experiences that we have, I guess. What, how we choose even in, so no, no matter what the experience is, whether you're an artist or whether you're, um, you know, um, a cook or a lawyer, but you're telling a story, how language becomes this other framing device and how we sort of represent and identify within particular situations that we're involved. So for me, it's always interesting working, although I'm aware that in in the situations that I'm I'm involved, that there is, I'm susceptible also to the kind of um, invasive objectifying qualities of the um, ethnographic lens. I also try to sort of distance myself from that in a way to to put people sort of in a, in a somewhat more balanced playing field to be able to sort of produce the content um, that we're creating and to sort of call the shots about what the imagery is going to be. So I'll just show you one more clip from this. Um, OK, um I in the interest of time, um Curtin, maybe you can help me. I, I know that we've, we've gone over. I'd, I'd love to show that, um, the Route 3 film, but it's 20 minutes long. So if you, if you think we can fit it in, I'll, I'll do that. But otherwise, um, I could. We started a little late. Yeah. OK. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to show you one full length work, because you come all this way. Um, let me see.
3: There are
4: On the first working day of the new year of 2011, the president went with his staff, assistants, handlers, soldiers, drivers, and a handmaiden, to visit the construction site of a new highway that will connect all of Southeast Asia from that point on to Beijing, Harbin, Minsk, St. Petersburg and even Paris. Standing under the shade of a large bishopwood tree, he met with a delegation of translators and journalists from here and there. When asked why the president came to visit the site on that particular day, The translator said, because it is the first working day of the new year of 2011. There was confusion as to if he was the president of the company or the president of the country. The event lasted a total of 23 minutes and yielded one group photo opportunity to commemorate the event. Behind them, the waters of the Mekong continued to flow downstream. Soon after this day, a week to be precise, the new stock exchange of Laos opened for business. The date, an auspicious
2: 1-11-2011.
4: According to international news outlets, the volume of the first day's trading was thin, about 2.14 billion kip, or $265,000. On the opening day, two companies were listed on the stock exchange, the power company and the bank. By year's end, this number could increase to three or five. It's safe to say the Laos Stock Exchange is a frontier market. Frontier markets are a subset of emerging markets, which have market capitalizations, which are small, but nonetheless demonstrate a relative openness and accessibility for foreign investors, and are not under extreme economic and political instability. The rule of thumb for investing in foreign markets is best summed up with the phrase coined by a master investor, use your eyes and plagiarize. (laughs)
2: Blah, <laughs> blah,
3: มีวิธีการเฮ็ดกสิกรรมอยู่และสามารถเหตุนาได้แบบการเป่งรัฐบาลได้ถูกยุรัฐบาลจึงสะดวกในการการย้ายดินปลูกฝังแตกต่างจากการรัฐบาลบ่มักนําซ้ายวิธีนี้รัฐบาลได้ออกอันนี้มันมาตั้งปริมาณ 3 ครั้ง. การสร้างถนนทางพัดแผ่โพดถนนพากันย้ายลงมาอาศัยอยู่
4: In years past, Boten was a small farming village near the border with China. When the Lao government rented the village to China for 75 years, the villagers took their compensation along with their furniture, seedlings, and children and built new Bowten, just eight kilometers away. Old Boten was remodeled according to the tastes of the Chinese, which included blindfolded lions, Corinthian and Ionic columns, glass escalators, Sichuan restaurants, hair salons, casinos, brothels, an outdoor skating rink, and the Hotel de Ville. Villagers sometimes go to old Boten for work, but not on the casino floor. These jobs are held by young Chinese who come from towns they sometimes fail to mention. In the casino, under each poker table, is placed a metal wash bin with fresh ginger and a cleaver. This is said to keep gamblers from walking away with bitterness once they've lost.
0: Thanks, David, for fascinating insights into your work and the background you your work on. So we have time for questions about half an hour. So if you could use the microphone. As you know, this is being recorded.
5: I just have a question that kind of goes back to something you raised in the beginning of your talk
6: mm-hmm.
5: um where you had the clips from the documentary with the man who was talking about how he, it was always the documentarian f- photographing him and how he felt that that was kind of unfair and um just so the idea of like representing or like representing subjectivity in a documentary lens where representing like personhood or like kind of taking it away from this I don't know how to explain it exactly, but just like that, there's the idea that there is a performance being enacted in that space for you and that you are capturing that as the documentarian. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm just wondering if there's anything in the documentary Impulse itself that is kind of antithetical to the kind of thing that that man wanted to see, or if it's, I mean, if you could just kind of talk a little bit more about, like, is it possible to reconcile the desire to have, like, full subjectivity in that documentary with the desire to have a documentary itself?
1: Okay, right. Uh, yeah, I, 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 that's. I don't know. I think <laughs> that's a really good question. That's a question I, I I ask myself. You know, the. It's um. Was I was thinking about? it Reminds me of um, you know what's his name? Uh, Fred Wiseman was the Radcliffe um, resident this year, and uh, he was giving a talk at Radcliffe and. Somebody asked him, you know, do you ever think you know, something's going to happen to the people that you're filming that you, maybe you shouldn't be filming? Because it's, and, and he said no, that it, he, doesn't, he doesn't feel that way, that he thinks that things are just going to happen. He doesn't, th- he doesn't think that the camera's changing anything. He just feels like he walks in with a camera, he's filming this thing, and if he didn't film it, it wouldn't, it wouldn't be recorded, and people wouldn't know about that, and that he feels like the fact that it's been made, and that people can respond to what that thing is that he's recorded, that that has. Uh, Its own sort of um, innate value, Um, and I I don't know. I I I don't know. I don't necessarily agree with Frederick Wiseman. Um, I think his work is beautiful and interesting, Um, but for me, I guess I I have kind of been, at least for the past few years, really um, focused on rehearsing these structures, just kind of thinking about. Always staging the structure and not necessarily just using the documentary lens transparently to do my thing. So I, I'm interested in these people who do. They really, I find their films really compelling and sometimes really hard to watch. But for me, um, it's become this kind of sort of getting halfway there. Like you're in a site with people who have stories to tell, and yet um, I want to set up a framework that can be. Um, allow for some distancing in, in, in order for us to to think about, I guess, that, that structure. I guess to ruminate on that, or to, to, uh, to um, uh, consider that structure that's happening in people like Kazuo O'Hara's and, and, and uh, John Roosh's and Shirley Clark's films. Um, I don't know. I feel like I'd, I'd, I'd like to make films like that, like like Andy Warhol's um, screen test, things like that. I think that that's a really complicated issue. It, it Oftentimes, it's about. Access and community, and where, where where you find yourself, and who's who's willing to perform for you, right, or be present for your camera, um, and then it's then it becomes more about um, a kind of co-presence, right? Particularly in Warhol's thing, I think, that um, is interesting to to look at. And uh, David, um, I had two questions. One was um,
7: who. Uh, you imagine the audience for this video is. And I'm thinking of the early anthropological um, films that you cite, right, where it was um, clearly made for um, audiences in Europe Europe and the U.S. to look at, um, you know, these so-called indigenous um, societies. And so I was wondering um, who your audience was when you were making the film, but also in reference to kind of globalization of um, art now. And then the second question I had was on gender. Um, Your choice of um, the primary Laotian um, uh, characters uh, were women. And then the Laotian speaker was also a woman. And then your narrator is also a woman. So I was wondering um, what you were trying to do in terms of um, the way that gender was being constructed in the film.
1: Okay. Uh, So uh, I'll start with your second question. Um, I think that uh, so, in researching for this film, we um, relied a lot on um, this um, anthropologist's work on researching how the road was changing the communities. This because the area that it's cutting the roads cut through Laos to connect Thailand and Chi- Th- Thailand and China is um, primarily um, ethnic minority. Um, and so there um, there um, you know this anthropologist who's, who's no, who is not um, is not an eth- from an ethnic minority group but is um, from from the capital had, had looked into how these things were changing in terms of um, the landscape of the road, what was being built on the road, and, and what he noticed was he um, That people, when they started, when they moved to the road and they were doing these cash crop economies, that they had some more money to spend, and so what they were doing was doing things that they wouldn't normally have done. For example, um, in the in like rural Laos, people wash at a at like a spring, right, or or the river um, if you don't have plumbing in your house. But um, if you move near the road and then there's new buildings, then there's Beauty parlors, and so you go to have other people wash your hair because you're working, because you don't have time to necessarily wash your your hair and your kids' hair. And so, um, this idea that the hair salon is one of the signs of modernization was really interesting to us. And um, also, this this kind of notion that hair salons are places where people tell stories or secrets is, you know, uh, was interesting uh, association as well. So it seemed like a place where maybe the text that comes from the anthropologist interviews might be planted into the mouths of people who are getting their hair washed in these salons. So in some ways, it was relating to a site that is a marker within this kind of anthropo- anthropological account of the road um, of modernization. So that's, that's why the choice was made uh, with, those, with the women in the hair salon. Um, but in t- um, Gender-wise, yeah, I guess the narrator is uh, is a woman as well. Um, the English narrator and the Lao narrator are women as well. Um, well, that comes to the situation. Sometimes there's there is a certain pragmatism as well. I talked about fixer. You know that all all filmmakers need a fixer. All documentarians need a fixer. It happened that the um, the fixer that we had, the person who was the lo- local producer, um, was someone who. Um, Comes from a very, like one of the revolutionary families in Lao, so her father's really famous, and she decided to work on this project with us because she has a, a production company, and she um, she can uh, is 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 fluent in Lao and English, so um, she would translate some of the anthropologist's writing, which is in English, into Lao, so that we could have that in Lao to be to to be uh, part of the script. Um, but then when she looked at some of the, the, the criticism that the, the anthropologists had about how the state was affecting change and making opium illegal and dealing with um, also the situation with um, um, uh, dispossession of land and some of the issues that came up in the text um, and the Chinese coming in and building a casino and so forth, she backed out of the project. She didn't want to have her, um, her voice in there because she was worried that her father in the government that it was too controversial, so we had to um, uh, alter, digitally alter her voice so it didn't sound the same, that it, so that it was unrecognizable, so that we could use it in the film. Um, because it's still very problematic to, to have any sort of um, criticism of the government allows, because things are just starting to sort of open up, I guess. Um, but I'm not sure if I answered sufficiently the question about gender. Um, um, and then the idea that you asked about, the question you had about um, audience. Um, well, I'm happy to say that this film was screened in rural, La- rural, rural Thailand. Um, it was produced first um, um, thinking about, I mean, I think maybe we included Lao language in it, and um, as well as um, English, thinking that it, that it would be great if it could function in, in different terrains, right? And that maybe it could be shown in Laos. Um, eventually, um, and um, this curator from Singapore saw it in Utrecht and decided that he wanted to show it in a, a festival in Bangkok, a kind of uh, underground film underground film festival in Bangkok. So they showed it in Bangkok, and then they took it around to all, all these regional theaters all over Thailand. So um, I'm, and Thai is close enough to Lao that that, that, that that Thai people can understand Lao. So I I think it. I'm happy to say that it, it was seen by the local audience, at least maybe not Laos, but at least Thailand. Yeah.
8: Thank you for sharing your work. Uh, what struck me most about um, your work was this kind of invocation of uh, an imaginary, and also certain kind of aspirations, whether it's uh, modernity or mobility of certain kind, and so we have that, and there's also, also seems to be this tension between that and also the material infrastructures, um, such as roads and dams and things like that, and buildings. So I was just wondering, kind of thinking about that context or that framework or that tension of what you see as the role of um, media art or video art and kind of thinking about it in terms of, uh, the creative choices that you make mm-hmm. in your work.
1: Okay. Yeah, I, I think that's um, interesting that you pick up on that. I guess that seems to be a, a running theme, a sort of imaginaries of modernization and um, and yeah, and the structures that that are that sort of herald those changes or or that are destroyed to for that creation of that um, and. Um, I, uh, yeah, <laughs> uh, that's, a, that's, a, that's a good question. Um, can you just clarify a little bit more what you mean, that last bit of your question? I'm sorry, oh, do you, you don't have the microphone. Can you, <laughs> sorry.
8: Um, I guess I was also really interested in the different kinds of uh, media forms that you use, whether it's photography or documentary or digital um, video, it seemed like. So
1: So just actual, okay. Right. So So
8: thinking uh, about the materiality of the medium as as well and how that interjects into this tension between imaginary and material.
1: Right. Um, So I I feel like... There's a certain. Recently, I've been I've been thinking about people who are making work similar to the kind of work that I I make, um, and that it's of its about its contemporaneity. You know, this idea that you would deal with something that's happening right now, because they are were, we're kind of coming a little bit out of this maybe 10 or 15 years of artists doing a lot of work that was really retrospective, that was thinking about sort of. Um, and maybe that's what some of this work grew out of, like thinking about the sort of the dashed hopes of modernity and how, how we can cope with what's, what's happening now, but looking to the future where, where things are happening. So I, working in China, for example, or in Laos, where these uh, Chinese-funded uh, infrastructural projects are, are, at, are happening, I feel like um, digital video um, is The present of experimental film, I think, in the sense that it's a it's a way it's a cheap um, a cheap form of communication where somebody like me who has an idea interested in something that some a friend told them about or an article they read or a place they traveled can investigate a situation that has if if they have the liberty to do that right without too much money you can get a small grant this was funded by a a eight thousand dollar grant from the Asian Cultural Council. So it was—it's not a lot of money in terms of producing a film, you know, like uh, a 30-minute f- film typically would be a $200,000 budget, right? So, being able to carry a small portable camera and go into a site that's experiencing these changes, I think, is a, is a is in some ways about contemporaneity and a, and a ba- about a reflexiveness to and a uh, a sensitivity to things while they're in this state of becoming. So, I. I think that uh, for me, that's what it is. In a way, it's a kind of a, a, a kind of drawing or a kind of thinking out loud uh, through media. And so, the difficulty I find is that that um, is where you show it, right? So, you could show it in an experimental film festival. You could show it in an art gallery, um, but you don't get a lot of audiences for that. So, I haven't really figured out that that problem. Like, how do you get this distributed? It's great if a curator from Bangkok sees it in a gallery, and then wants to show it in a. I mean, that's a, a nice context if it can get around and people can see it. But it's not mainstream, so it's not going to be seen by broad audiences, and that's its advantage too because it can be critical and be experimental aesthetically, um, and yet, um, and yet, how to get it out to people, you know. Um, with the, with the web and these sort of YouTube and things like that just sort of swamped with sort of media. How does it get to the right people that you want to see it, to have conversations? And so for now, it's typically been in this sort of environment where it's more of an academic or art world context. So we can, like in Utrecht, Cosmin um, Cosinas, the curator, was doing a, a festival called The Former West. And it was this idea of sort of looking at the, at, as the we, at the West as sort of in the past tense and thinking about what's happening in terms of other places in the world. And so he had a film festival and he brought in some, some philosophers from China and he brought in some philosophers from Africa and we all sat around a table and had conversations and watched films from the Philippines. And so those kind of forms are, are really rare and, and kind of beautiful, but um, it takes people organizing that sort of thing and making accessible. So that, I don't know, that, that's my best experience I've had with that type of work so far.
6: Great talk. Uh, I really enjoyed it. Um, is this on? Yes. Thanks. Um, uh, so, you're a documentarian. Um, uh, you're you're wedded to a nonfiction <coughs> ethic for these works, but you also move in an art world circuit. Um, I guess I'm just wondering uh, what you must have given a lot of thought to what nonfiction is um, or or where it starts happening. Uh, you mentioned Irving Goffman uh, at the beginning of the talk, and he he thought that in public contexts, there's an element of theatricality to everything that we do. Um, uh, you also mentioned sort of the um, uh, the world of documentary making that attracts big audiences, you know, the stuff that, that appears in the theaters and is successful partly because people know they know what they're going to get when they're going in. Um, so part of my question was just uh, where nonfiction starts for you, uh, not as a, a a late anthropological postmodern thing, but as a real pragmatic question that you must tackle in your work, and um, uh, you know where water freezes for you, I guess. <laughs> and and the second part of it is, um, I, I'd like to ask you a little bit about uh, where you how you see this as reflecting on uh, experimental documentaries on the one hand, and sort of. Uh, big audience documentaries, on the other hand, that is does the fact that the larger ones are conventional mean that they 're more fictional because um, they 've been staged in predictable ways, or does the fact that they 've been conventionalized uh, make them um, uh, make them more truthful to the people who are watching them because they know what the conventions are so they can read them and read themselves out of them if necessary
1: okay yeah those are those are complex and good questions. Um, well, the, the um, yeah, I, I, I don't know. I've, I've never really proposed to myself to make whatever kind of a mainstream documentary is. Uh, I think I, I feel more of an allegiance to uh, experimental art practices. Um, I feel like I, I use documentary film as a, as a raw material for, for my... Um, process of making my work, and, and as a um, as a um, as a theoretical through theoretical framework for um, for cultural interaction, cross cultural filmmaking, or cross cultural art making, um, and so uh, yeah, I mean I get a lot of that kind of criticism sometimes. I, I think uh, um, f- um, of that. Well, this you know this is. You know, it's not—it's—it's a—it's a work made on site about a real thing, but it's—I it, I don't get it. You know, it's not—it's not—you're not following the narrative structures of that that, are, that the kind of the um, uh, c- continuity f- um, sort of Hollywood narrative structures that would be able to tell this, make this argument that t- a documentary film would make. So, does it lose its um, political potential or its potential for um, for change or communication? when you work with abstraction. And, um, and I, again, that's, a, I guess, a question that I've just left sort of suspended. Um, I, I don't know the answer to that. I think that, um, I th- for me, um, the imaginary is, 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 a, is a really interesting place in order to sort of pose questions of change and identity. And, and, and that's why I, fi- I feel like the rehearsal and the kind of this theatrical nature of these kind of stagings that I film uh, is 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 responding to that, um, and so when I when I show Gordon Matta Clark's work, I think he's somebody that's has influenced me a lot. His idea of sort of an architecture and this kind of sort of subtractive nature of things, which I feel like is in some ways a very physical um, dealing with space and and the imaginary and abstraction. So you're still dealing with the, an actual site, real bricks and mortar. But you're, you're coming to it with a project and a prospect and a, and a question, and, and you don't really have the answer. So you work through the process of sort of playing out this imaginary form in order to get there. And then what you're left with is this still bricks and mortar, but mixed with this gesture. And I, I feel like that kind of uh, elusiveness and, and, and beauty has as much value, I think, for, for Audience and community um, as a documentary, straight documentary film would. Um, and so, how do I get to non? Uh, fit? Where do I draw the line? Where do I kind of? Where do I reach? Or how do I uh, approach nonfiction? Um, I, I don't know. I I I just that that that's quote, quotation I said at the beginning by uh, from Stroblier. Um, th- that they call every film, a doc. every film's a documentary, I think just really rings really true to me. So I just feel like a cam- there's, I can't get over the, the, in, the sort of the allure of the indexical nature of the camera. It just sort of, from the minute I picked a camera up, that's affected me. So I, I love how it can do both those things simultaneously. And, I, and, and, and it, it should do them both simultaneously. And, and so, well, yeah, that's, that's my answer for that.
5: Hey, thanks so much for the talk. Um, I was really struck in watching um, the long clip you showed towards the end of when I think of films and, and video, one of the first things I think of is the image. Mm-hmm. And I thought it was so visually striking how you, how you limited the image in a certain sense. And, and I was just wondering what informed that aesthetic choice and why you chose to make that decision.
1: Uh. In terms of how the, uh, the the sort of syncopation of the three the, the three yeah, frame and, yeah.
5: and in watching it, it and in, part of it might be the projection, but most of, you know a lot of the screen was was black in a certain sense. Like the image was very small and contained within um, you know, and there were times too where you just had text on a black screen. And I was just wondering what what informed that choice.
1: Um, yeah, so. The the way that that project was was shot. I mean, in, in some ways, it, it, it. I I think that it has some relationship to what I would call like essay filmmaking. Although I don't think myself as an essay filmmaker, but people like um, coming out of people like um, Chris Marker and, and Trinty Minha, um, where um, text becomes something very important to. Um, to combine with image, so how do you how do you do that? How do you allow people to s- to stop and listen? How do you kind of distance that experience? How do you pace it? Um, I feel like spending time with the images gives the viewer giving uh, taking your time with the image that you're presenting to an audience gives the the audience more agency in the viewing experience. To one um, to observe the image. And two, to be aware of their presence in the theater um, and, and, and to think about what they're experiencing, if, whether it's boredom or curiosity or, um, or that frame. So um, sometimes this is, is projected larger. Um, it's usually done with three projectors instead of one projector. So it isn't necessarily my intention for it to be small. But it is my intention for there to be moments of of negative, just just black, and sometimes for there to be text. And so to sort of separate out those different um, framing devices, like language and image and um, the absence of image and sound, so.
9: Thanks for the talk. Um, I'm wondering if we can take a brief foray into apparatus theory because I think it's a really interesting time for the documentarians and that their toolkit keeps expanding thanks to new hardware technologies. Um, so what I'm interested in is sort of the the phenomenon of um, stealth documentary filmmaking, uh, <laughs> even when it's not consciously practiced in that way. Um, it, you know, today we walk around with smartphones in our pockets that can shoot video in 1080p. Um, there, I, I see a lot of documentaries, especially uh, sort of amateur-produced documentaries that end up online that actually look great because they were shot with DSLR cameras, but then you have the documentarian who's kind of walking around with what appears to be a still camera uh, actually doing the work of filmmaking. So it's, it's interesting to me that filmmaking used to be a practice that announced itself in, in a physical space, and now that's not necessarily the case. So. I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about, you know, what your experience has been with those technologies, if uh, if anything, or just what your thoughts are on, sort of the, the ethics and the practice of making films uh, in the real world with these new technologies.
1: Yeah. Uh, well, a couple anecdotes. I mean, it, like working in Laos, um, there's the the government and the police are really. Um, Skeptical of, of big cameras and so it, it actually became a, a choice you know just a pragmatic choice that we would use a DSLR camera to shoot the video so small you know 35 millimeter camera to shoot video so this was all shot on a Canon uh, 5d mark II, and um, so that choice was pragmatic in that sense um, and um, I think that also you know when you're working on the kind of budgets that I'm working on like I'm, I'm not um, a a, sort of a commercial artist at this point, and I'm also not a commercial documentarian so I haven't been lucky enough to have huge budgets so it, there's a pragmatism of dealing with what is affordable um, for production and that's what's really exciting about the technology I think is that you can produce films that look like the quality of of a sixty millimeter film but with a you know with a, a small thirty five millimeter camera so I think that's Been exciting for a lot of people. The risk is that things start looking the same. Like you, you, when the when the 5D came out, all videos started looking like that, and you can just see that look because there's the soft focus. And before, no, you know, prosumer, you know. semi-professional filmmakers were able to get really good depth of field, and now this camera comes out and everybody's shooting with this really artsy kind of soft focus and pulling focus. And so it, it's interesting how technology changes the look of cinema and documentaries. Immediately a technology comes out and um, that becomes a signifier within, um, within the, the production model. So. Um, there's a really funny video. I, I don't know where you would see it, but uh, there's an artist from Germany called, uh, I don't know if she's from Germany or from Israel. I think she's from Germany, Karen Sitter. And um, she made a, a, a film called, um, it. she basically did a, a, a video art piece that's a spoof on a technical demonstration of the Canon Mark II 5D, where she has all these dramas happening on the, just outside of the frame as this guy's trying to explain how he can get his focus just right and how the snow is falling and how, how um, how uh, fetishized this type of cameras and technologies are right now.
0: So David, w- one last question because it's close to 7 o'clock. Um, in in the, the description of your talk, you also mentioned uh, a new project that you're working on or you have just recently worked on in, in the Amazon. Mm-hmm. Uh, can you talk about that just briefly in what sense it's taking some of those elements that you've showed us in some of your other work and where it's sort of leading into a new direction?
1: Yeah, sure, Thank, thanks for asking about that. Yeah, I, I skipped over that in the interest of time. But um, so that project was directly related to um, my interest in anthropo- anthropology and sort of how new anthropological practices are dealing very much with the kind of the same Theory that I find artists dealing with. I mean, um, like psychoanalysis. You know, um, you read a, a, a book. A, you read like October, this art journal from MIT, and and people are uh, analyzing art using Lacan and Derrida and um, and Freud and and their, their, and Marx. And you go to an anthropology book, and it's the exact same texts that are being quoted as a way to think about that relationship, the sort of ethnographic relationship and how we interpret um, that type of uh, research. So I just got really interested in the crossovers of, of art and ethnography. And, and so in Brazil, it just seemed like um, a very loaded space in terms of its colonial history and in terms of um, its sort of serving as this, you know, this ecological zone—it's sort of the, the lungs of the world—and and and, um, and also the the role of 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 um, indigenous Brazilians there um, that are you know feeling more and more the pressures of the city that, that is growing Manaus, and so um, I I I shot um, I worked with this um, filmmaker in Manaus. Uh, let's see. Do I have? Um, I worked with this filmmaker in Manaus um, who was making a, a, fi- a fictional film um, about. Uh, and I'll just turn off the sound and let it play while I'm talking. Let's see. Um, he, he this he's making a fictional film about. Um, well, I didn't know that. I, I went there to make this project about a film about the making of an ethnographic film in the favela of of Manaus. So I I. W- Contacted a local producer to get me a crew of local act, kind of amateur actors who would portray the role of a kind of ethnographers going into a favela community and filming a local person uh, and asking asking them stories to tell their stories. Right. So I, I wanted to kind of make a film about a film making of a film, and um, I also wanted to think about that in terms of um, all the archives that are in this place because there's all this Amazon research on on. Biodiversity. So this is a. These are from the the IMPA, which is a local uh, biodiversity research center that that catalogs all the leaves from all the trees that are and in the Amazon rainforest. And so I used elements of the the kind of the cataloging that is this process of botany and science and scientific realism as a kind of framework to think about. Also the sort of the the analog of that in ethnographic realism, laid over kind of my work as a as an as an artist. So. It um, happened that the producer who was working with me was making his own fictional film about a, a suicide of, 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 on an Indian reservation, and um, he had these local actors, these guys that were working with him, um, who were, um, he was rehearsing with them, his, his film, it was about this suicide because they'd been influenced by uh, heavy metal music and, and, and meth, methamphetamines and, and alcohol had gotten back to the reservation and it's like they kind of, he, is, his, he was sort of um, essentializing the story, I thought, a little bit, where he was mixing um, the imaginary of, of indigenous cultures in Brazil having um, a tradition of, of mythology that they can access and, and traditional um, uh, hallucinogenic drugs that take part of, that they that are part of their cultural practices, mixed with heavy metal music being a new kind of religion and drugs and the new like, methamphetamines being another kind of drug. So he he kind of blended them together, so it became unclear whether they were, um, you know, searching for their grandfather's lost tree of life or they were getting into Black Sabbath. So I, we talked a lot about that, and then I said, well, do you mind if I film the rehearsals for your film? And that's him, Sergio, the filmmaker on the left. And he's, these are his actors. And, um, and he said, that, that'd be fine. And then I said, can we, can we film them in the, in the Amazon opera where Fitzcarraldo was filmed? And he w- was able to arrange that. And so we had this, these rehearsals for this independent short film by a local filmmaker um, that dealt with imagery of these in, indigenous kids playing, oh, playing, the, playing their own culture in this fictional film. Um, that was based on a, a newspaper article. So it, it became a way for me to just sort of rehearse all these different uh, representations of realism within this site of the Amazon and all of our imaginaries of it, dating back from you know, the rubber boom to you know Herzog to the new bi- uh, biodiversity boom. Um, and this is part of what I, what I did, so. <laughs> well,
0: thanks a lot.
1: So thanks again for a fascinating talk. Yeah, thanks a lot
0: and maybe we can continue the discussion over at the reception down in the CMS offices.
1: Okay, sounds great, thank you.